0: Hi everyone and welcome to Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray and uh, Adam Boileau is back this week. He's better than ever. We have rebuilt him. We have the technology and uh, he will be along In the news segment in just a moment, this week's show is brought to you by Kroll Cyber and George Glass is this week's sponsor guest and uh, he's along to talk about how Kroll went back over some of its historical incident response caseload and found evidence that the COP group had been developing its Move It exploit for about two years before it perfected it, right? So that's a really interesting interview uh, and it's coming up. After this week's news, which starts now, and Adam, uh, speaking of Klopp and speaking of ransomware file transfer appliances and whatnot, <laughs> we've got some in-the-wild exploitation happening at the moment, uh, targeting WSFTP, and that's right, Winsock. That's what the WS stands for, Winsock FTP uh, server. So this is actually a software package run by Progress Software, which is the the same company that made MoveIt. There were a couple of bugs disclosed in it last week. There were eight bugs, but two of them were real clangers. One was discovered by Shubbs and Sean over at uh, AssetNote, the other one by Rapid7. Someone has dropped a POC, and now there's in-the-wild exploitation, and it looks uh, quite uh, bad
1: i mean i guess for those of us that are not quite as old as as me and and, and you like wsftp is a name that has been around since the like early 90s it was like a shareware uh, ftp client and server package like when i first downloaded linux in 1994 over dial-up i'm pretty sure i used wsftp as the, the ftp client like this is an old piece of software and uh it was really like like one guy from the army wrote it uh, in his spare time kind of thing. Eventually, uh, Ipswich Software was formed around it. Subsequently, purchased by by Progress, et cetera. So but yeah, like, this is
0: this is from back in the days when Windows didn't have an IP stack, right? So you'd have yeah. to install Winsock. So that you could actually get IP on your computer, and you know when you dialed in with your twenty eight point k- eight kilobit per second modem, yeah, uh, you know, exactly, right. So this is why, and you know, just the Winsock FTP, what year is this? It's major uh, time warp stuff. but it does look like the software has evolved somewhat. Um, it still supports it still supports FTP, though, which is incredible.
1: Well, I, I think that that is still its core competence, even though they've bolted on support for other you know forms of file transfer like FTP over SSL, which is also a terrible idea for various reasons, SFTP, etc. But the fact that that the software is even still around, let alone being used, and let alone, of course, has bugs in it because it was you know has a very very long lineage. Um, and one of the things you pointed out is there is a bigger installed base of this than MoveIt itself. Yeah. And we saw how much ha- chaos uh, and, uh, that caused around the internet. So, yeah, like, apparently, real blast apparently there's for the past like, stuff.
0: Just reading Catalan's report on this uh, this morning, there's apparently 4,300 WSFDP servers connected to the internet, right? And yeah. I don't know if it's CLOP doing this. I don't know if it's ransomware groups or data extortion groups, but there's definitely some exploitation happening. The other thing being exploited at the moment is the uh, JetBrains TeamCity CICD servers. Uh, so there's a bug in that that is also being exploited. But yeah, it just seems like it's a, it's a bad time. It's a bad <laughs> time. It is. Mean-
1: at least a CICD, like, there's a lot of moving parts you can kind of understand. It's a very, you know, modern thing that we're still trying to figure out how it should work. Like, I can kind of feel for bugs in that. But come on, FTP servers. Like, this is, a, a, you know, a protocol that predates HTTP. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's older than that. I think FTP actually technically predates IP. Wow. In that the first... FTPs were done over earlier prior than IP being widespread network, and that's why the like. Transfer mechanism is asked backwards and it sends the data the wrong way, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It makes firewall admins sad because it predates network firewalling. Well, it, doesn't,
0: it doesn't make firewall admins sad because they just block it and have done since as, about 1999, right? So as, as well, they should. <laughs> yes, and I
1: think maybe, maybe like you know how we block uh, Windows SMB and and Windows you know one through seven, etc. On the backbone networks of residential ISPs, we should just probably drop FTP. Uh, on the internet in the same way. Of course, then people would just tunnel it over other stuff so we can't see it, but, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, anyway, we're getting
0: sidetracked anyway, here. The yes, point we is, we saw the disclosure, you know, over the last week or two, we saw that these bugs being disclosed and then boom, you know, as soon as a pocket comes out, it starts getting weaponized and, and used. What's really amazing is this, this week's sponsor interview, like I recorded that last week or the week before, and, you know, George Glass from Kroll is in there going, oh, yeah, we're going to see more of this. And his prediction was more around stuff, and it's very interesting. I recommend people listen to this week's sponsor interview because he made some really good points about other targets the the thing that made Move it such a great thing to exploit en masse is because the vulnerability was on one box and the data was on one box. Right. So you could sort of programmatically do this at scale hack. And he reckons uh, I'm kind of spoiling some of the interview here, but you know, he reckons things like there, there's a lot of payroll systems out there where the data resides on the box and the and the code's properly creaky, right? So he he thinks we might see some, you know, uh, large scale exploitation of of systems like that. But here we are with a good old, you know, another file transfer uh, box being exploited in the wild, thousands of them out there. And I guess we just have to see whether or not this turns into something at the same scale as MoveIt. So while there are more boxes out there, you know, it feels like this is a less enterprisey kind of solution, so maybe the amount of data that attackers might get will not be so great. But we're only going to know in the fullness of time because, you know, I didn't even know people... Like, I did not expect thousands of WSFTP servers to be out there to be honest
1: (laughs) it it is pretty ridiculous but I think you know these things tend to be used in stuff that has been around a very long time or things that have to integrate with very old systems Uh, and that probably means lots of data on the same box and a long tail of that data which does make it a pretty juicy target because if you can steal data that's you know got 20 years of user records that does apply a lot of pressure to a company versus having to deal with you know a much smaller in time data breach so the volume of data the nature of data but also like if you have to notify customers going back 20 years it's going to take a lot it's going to cost you a lot of money to do that be very embarrassing etc etc so like these are just great targets uh, for ransomware crews to assert pressure and make money
0: now in case you were worried adam in case anyone out there was worried about the impact this might have had on Progress Software, all of this stuff, the Move It incident <laughs> being the biggest data loss incident in history, don't worry because Progress Software is happy to report that all of this didn't really affect them that much. <laughs> Which- I mean, I was worried about it, but I'm worried. I mean, about I was—I know that's what was keeping me up at night, worrying about progress <laughs> software and the business hit that they might have. But no, apparently they—they—they they, they spent about nine hundred and fifty grand in cyber incident and vulnerability response expenses. But apart from that, everything's fine.
1: Which, yeah, that—that that upsets me greatly because I feel <laughs> like they should suffer some consequences, ideally financial, uh, for doing it like this. <laughs> um, but you know, I guess if they bought w a very long time ago. They amortised the cost. Right? There's no uh, no, but no I mean this ended. is in relation yeah, to but, the move but it but in relation to move it yes yeah. as well. But I mean the you know I feel like companies like that do deserve to have some kind of you know financial spanking. But no, um the uh, cost for the breach for relating to move it was like 05 percent of their revenue for the quarter, which is up six percent. So
0: yeah. yeah, the invisible hand of the market did not so much spank them as. Cup their buttocks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> G- Gently de- deliver them on a, on a soft pillow yeah. to their, uh, you know, into know. their luxury vehicles or wherever it is. Whatever it is that they're doing, eating caviar. So I've
0: got a link through. Uh, Cybersecurity Dive has done some good coverage on this. I'll link through to Catalan's uh, uh, newsletter too this week. But it's just like, man, it's just amazing that... I, I did see a report too the other day. I think it was in Catalan's in newsletter where now bugs in Apple, Microsoft and Google stuff make up less than 50% of in-the-wild exploitation and that's the first time that's ever happened. And so, you know, there's, they're still the biggest three but they now represent less than half of stuff that we're seeing exploited in the wild. So there is a clear trend of threat actors now targeting enterprise-grade software. And, you know, indeed, like even through the Caesars and MGM stuff, like speaking to people I know who are sort of au fait with what happened there, in that case, not so much exploitation, but we're definitely seeing people using enterprise software as a way to get around in networks. We're also seeing it as, um, you know, f- frontline exploitation is now happening in, in enterprise software. And it's, yeah, it's just an interesting trend. And, yeah, and one, that, a, one that, frankly, uh, we kind of predicted a long time ago, like we predicted too early. Um, you know, we thought that this would be happening five, 10 years ago, and, and, yeah. and now it's happening now.
1: Cause I think we, we saw this coming with the demise of like Flash, because that was you know the thing that everyone exploited 10 15 years ago now flash and java and ActiveX and things in browsers and we thought that it would move on to something else but we weren't expecting it to go back to enterprise software back to network facing services you know I, I thought it was going to go somewhere else after that but mm. uh, yeah it's it's definitely been a pivot away from client side away from the traditional things acrobat reader etc well i suppose acrobat reader people still hack but you know some of the trads of that kind of late 2000s period as, yeah, it didn't really go 100% where I expected.
0: No, I mean, I remember too, because like browsers got better, and I think you were expecting more stuff like SSRF into enterprise gear, and then, you know, that that sort of thing. Yeah, I was expecting yeah. the,
1: the complexity of web apps and the web application ecosystem to catch up and then keep going. But instead we've to
0: gone to, back to, it's 999. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Winsock. Right. <laughs> winsock for the lose. Now let's talk about the Dossier Center's latest. Uh, of course, back in April, you and I spoke about their, um, you know, essentially they, they obtained data somehow uh, from Evgeny <laughs> Prigozhin's businesses. And that was an interesting chat that we had back then. And uh, look, their latest um, report, what they've managed to do is cobble together a, a list and a map, essentially, of sensitive Russian military and intelligence sites but it's the way that they've done this that's interesting. It's the, so funny. Yeah, the <laughs> Moscow like I think it was the was the Moscow City Hall. Yeah, Moscow City yes. Hall website accidentally published a document which included details about sites in Russia that had to have high availability electricity because otherwise, you know, bad things would happen. Now, a lot of these were sort of, you know, things like hospitals and whatnot, but there's a lot of other sites which are sort of nondescript buildings um, that, you know, clearly the the implication here is that they're military and intelligence sites. So it's just, the, I, I find this a really interesting example of how you can infer a lot from data all over the place, right? Like that that data is not being closely held, but has actually a great deal of intelligence value. This is just one more example of how, you know, intelligence has moved to being much more of a digital discipline these days.
1: Yes, I mean, some of the data is like, you know, here are a bunch of holiday Dutchess that just happen to be really super important, and you really wouldn't want to cut the power off because you'll totally lose your job if you do, and, you know, some of those are just going to be random rich people, but some of them are quite clearly, you know, related to foreign intelligence or related to various important aspects of the government, but there's also, you know, military, you know, ammunition depots and all sorts of other things that are, you know, interesting and important for a war effort that, you know, I don't imagine that anyone who worked at moscow city hall thought they would be in a major conflict you know and this data would be as sensitive as it is now you know however many 10 15 20 years ago whenever they built their digital systems and i think that's a pattern we see all across all of our countries where we didn't expect the degree of hostility and you know geopolitical conflict etc and so you know understanding the risks for these systems you know when we built them so long ago. You know the world has changed in ways we didn't expect.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I think it's amazing too that the dossier center has just put this all on a navigatable map, which I'm <laughs> guessing is going to be quite uh, popular in uh, in to, to to in certain capitals to the west of Russia. Let's just
1: put it that way. <laughs> quite probably, yes. Yeah, mm. Certainly useful for targeting information and to understand what's going on. And uh, I don't know some of that mundane information you can get from you know billing systems and records keeping systems is you know there are super interesting things you can do with it when you've got the data available and searchable and cross-referenceable and, and so on and we're getting quite good at that as a yeah. computer science discipline
0: now speaking of russia uh one of the major flight booking systems in russia has been getting DDoSed and uh to to quite a degree and we've saw you know one of the other flight booking systems you know we spoke about that last week they got owned and like you know Tens of years of uh, historical flight records uh, are now available to people who might be interested in them. And now we're seeing DDoSes and whatever. So this is just a, you know, steady drumbeat of this sort of stuff happening lately, right?
1: Yeah. And this particular one has been claimed by the Ukrainian IT Army, which doesn't mean a whole bunch because, you know, distributed group much like anonymous in the old days um, but yeah clearly causing problems for Moscow and, and you know I think there is this feeling that by bringing some of that conflict home to Russians it makes it more real for them and makes you know Putin's life more difficult but still even just taking it out domestic flight bookings um, you know that's gonna ruffle a lot of feathers make a lot of complexity for everybody
0: now last week when uh, Dimitri was filling in for you uh, I said that uh, you know all these DDoS attacks and whatnot on Canada I said everyone's blaming Russia, but, you know, surely there might be some Indian Indian nationalists in the mix here. It <laughs> yeah. turns out that, yeah. Sure enough. Sure enough, next minute. Um, it turns out there's a bunch of um, uh, DDoS attacks coming from, well, there's some Indian groups claiming credit for them. I, I'm not sure if it was India, Indian groups that were behind the specific DDoS attacks that we were uh, talking about last week. But, yeah, certainly my, my spidey sense was on, uh, on target there when I was suggesting that um, they could expect some drama from Indian nationalists, given everything that's happening over there.
1: Yes, and, you know, there's been a bunch of denial of service against all sorts of, just, you know, the usual kind of grab bag of opportunistic targets that are kind of vaguely Canadian government related, you know, various councils and uh, some election like brochureware sorts of systems, uh, etc. But, uh, you know, kind of embarrassing, but not impactful, but definitely getting some coverage uh, in the Canadian press.
0: Now speaking of embarrassing, but probably not that impactful, um, Sec, which breached—oh, <laughs> breached—is a strong word, isn't it? Which somehow gained access to a NATO uh, information sharing portal, or you know, a few months ago, and uh, pinched some documents and made a big deal about it. Uh, apparently, uh, they've done it again and um, broken into some other NATO system and stolen. Uh, they claim three thousand. Documents and NATO's um, investigating it. I mean, it's like, you know, you see reports on this, but it's impossible to really know if there's going to be much of an impact from this or if it's just going to be a bunch of really boring bureaucratic documents.
1: Yeah, certainly, you get the feeling that it's going to be pretty boring. I and mean, one of the sites that they breached was called the uh, <clears throat> NATO Lessons Learned Portal. Which I don't no, know if you could yeah. think of a more boring name uh, for, for a forest. Well, you could but, you
0: could you could select a more enraging one because they could have called it the NATO Learnings
1: Portal. They could have. Yes, and that then, would definitely right. be more aggravating. That's for sure. Then I would attack um, so, it myself. <laughs> <laughs> Just for the name, like, and also like the NATO Standardization Office. I mean, having read NATO standards documents at some point in my career, when when I was building the Kimikon Nine website that had like the fake Pew map. And I got my got a beer in my bonnet that decided that the symbology had to be correct. And so I read like several hundred pages of NATO standardized symbology documentation to understand how the how it should look, etc., etc., because, you know, nerd. Um, well, you're a deeply, so deeply boring. strange man, I think is the <laughs> more
0: complete explanation of that. But uh, yes, of course you did uh, But that. yeah,
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, it's going to be funny, but it also has to be authentic funny. Yeah, exactly. um, anyway, I, like this feels like just opportunistic and boring and really, I mean, Siege Sheck, doesn't seem to have a particularly clear agenda other than making trouble and not... No, they're saying know.
0: this has nothing to do uh, with the war between Russia and Ukraine. It is a retaliation against the
1: countries of NATO for their attacks on human rights. Yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> I, I don't know if you can claim that anything isn't related to the war in, uh, war in Europe when you're targeting NATO, but yeah, I've mean, it seems like I don't, I don't know what to make about it. It just seems like your average kind of lolsecky... You know, activisty comedy. Well, it's Black attention hat-y. seeking stuff, you would think, yes. right? Like that's yeah. sort of what it
0: feels like. Um, hopefully they get bored and all go and get jobs in the security industry, which is what normally happens to people With, like that. Yeah. And honestly, like it pays better too, buddy. It does. Just saying. It does, and you don't have to worry about the FBI jumping out from behind a pot plant and slapping handcuffs on you. So that's an, another exactly. nice benefit. Uh, we got some follow-up reporting here from Reuters. Speaking of a data breach that actually did have some consequence, um, so this this recent, you know, uh, Microsoft online exchange thing that targeted the State Department and a bunch of other uh, other groups. You know, this is with the stolen the the stolen key out of the crash dump, and uh, you know that hack uh, looks like sixty thousand emails. Uh, They got 60,000 emails out of the State Department,
1: which is pretty crazy. I mean that doesn't sound like that many inboxes when I, mean, I look at how many are in my Gmail. <laughs> but that was from ten
0: that was from ten State Department accounts as yeah. per
1: Reuters. But sixty
0: thousand from 10, 10 accounts I mean, that's six thousand per. It's, that's not bad.
1: Yeah. I mean that's you know, my inbox is about that size. So But you know, what I'm I not- found
0: interesting is that they were indeed dumping the entire inboxes, yes. I guess. That's yeah, I mean, of course
1: you, of course you would. And that's like that to me is the real tragedy of this story is they had a bug that good and they only got sixty thousand emails. Like yeah, you, you know, you've
0: mentioned this real? so many times, but like this is just how it works sometimes. When the bosses say we want this stuff, you know,
1: then you yeah, got to. I get just it. feel for every bug that gets burned. Like I feel them in my heart. Like, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but what else do they have? I mean, how much other key mat do they have? Magic, yeah, well, magic Microsoft well, key mat that lets them sail into any <laughs> yeah. mailbox in
1: the world. Yeah, exactly. Right? What, what else are they off doing? But uh, <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I, I just feel bad. You know, I always want to pour out the. What what do you pour out in China? I guess like at 50 of Qingdao. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, pour one out for the bugs that get killed uh, yeah. in the line of work, the line of duty. So my res- we, we pay our pay our respects here at Risky We Business do we do
0: pour one out. Um, now it's interesting what you were saying about you know geopolitics changing all of this stuff because I, I you know is something I was going to mention as well this week. Suzanne Smalley, who's over at the Record these days, has a great report up. I always like Suzanne's stuff. Like she's she's really good. She's got a great report up talking about um, the risks to the energy sector globally uh, from, you know, cyber threat actors, if we're going to use the correct nomenclature, particularly Chinese and Russian. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's I, I, I've, I found it an interesting read because it did get me thinking that as much as the cyber war element between Russia and UK, Ukraine has been a bit of a flop, You know, you got to be careful not to say that that's always what cyber action is going to look like in the future. And I think the extent to which Russia failed to prosecute a successful campaign in the cybers in Ukraine has sent a lot of other countries back to the drawing board and saying, "Well, maybe we need to think more strategically about how we use this and whatever." And when you look at the role of global energy supplies in geopolitics at the moment, I mean, it's driving so much. You know, obviously the um, you know, everything happening with Russia and Ukraine is a big factor. You've got Australia spending, you know, $370 billion or whatever it is on a, um, you know, on a nuclear submarine program, which it's my understanding that that's largely to protect our, you know, we, we import all of our liquid fuels and they come through Singapore and I'd, I'd hazard a guess that that's what uh, AUKUS is about. So the idea that you might get Russian and Chinese crews... Trying to get some deep access into energy infrastructure globally, so that they might be able to disrupt energy supplies uh, to to adversaries. I think that's something that we do need to take seriously.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I think Suzanne makes a good kind of contrast in the piece between the kind of the macro aspects you're talking about like the, the fact that energy is so important geopolitically and, and the way that we're all so interconnected and then the kind of more targeted more specific like actually what are we going to hack how are we going to hack it what expertise do we have in breaking into energy supply networks like and there's these kind of two bits that are starting to mesh together and i think the um you know when we look back at russia uh, versus ukraine we will see like the, the difference between the effects the russians wanted to create and the, cap- the technical capabilities and access that they had to do it didn't really line up, right? I mean, doing WannaCry style um, attacks into Ukraine's infrastructure, you know, even over the last few years, didn't really line up with their political with the political goals they were trying to achieve. Uh, and they, as we we talked about, you know, they kind of spent their effort too early. They used it wrong because of lack of communications. Et cetera, et cetera. Whereas I think in the energy sector, it's a bit more clear that the cyber capability. And the geopolitical goals can line up um and you know china in particular because of their energy like their energy dependence on the outside of the world it's just it's a different situation than ukraine but so many of the lessons from ukraine apply Uh, so it's a you know important place for us to think and you know the interaction between private sector parts and government parts is different than than the military example that you use so like it's clearly the choke point where cyber can actually be effective, I think.
0: Yeah, and you're dealing with a lot of moving parts where cybersecurity investment might be a little bit lacking, you know, yes. in, in things like ports, shipping companies, things like yeah, that, the, right? So there the are vulnerabilities big, there. A you very know,
1: physical plant that lasts a very long time and has a very long infrastructure investment kind of return yeah. period, so yeah.
0: I mean, I think, I think, you know, you could probably cause some serious economic effects uh, by disrupting energy supplies. I don't think you could cut Absolutely. them off completely with the cybers, but I think you could cause some some serious economic consequences just by disrupting it. But again, you know, I don't want to be overhyping it and saying, oh, no. the Chinese are going to turn off the oil. Um, you know, there's, there's going to be a workaround eventually. But I do expect that this is where governments are going to spend a bit of time studying vulnerabilities in global energy supply. And it's something that we should be aware of.
1: Yeah, and there's just you know, there's so much complexity there, especially with the you know renewable uh, resources these days and all the supply chains and manufacturing chains for solar panels and for wind turbines and so on and so on. Like there's just it's a really interesting problem, and it will keep you know analysts and government busy for a very long time.
0: Yeah, so that story is based on an FBI notification sent to the energy industry uh, in the United States, and uh, Suzanne got her hands on it somehow and, and wrote that story. And it's a good one, and it's linked through in this week's show notes. So go check that one out. Uh, what else have we got? Yeah, we got uh, Chinese APTs behaving badly. Um, they are hacking, I think, uh, Cisco devices. But what's interesting is they're targeting the subsidiaries of Japanese and American companies outside of their home countries, and then you know owning them via some you know Cisco technique, and then pivoting into the um, uh, into the home networks. That's about right, isn't it? What are they calling it? Black tech.
1: Black tech. Yeah, there's there's actually a couple of things that I thought was interesting about this because there's the Cisco as initial entry point, which that gets a little confusing because Cisco makes so so many things, you know, from enterprise and service provider routers down to consumer grade gear. And, you know, someone owning a Linksys that's owned by Cisco is kind of a different story than owning a service provider and then using the Cisco. So this is the initial entry point and there's been a bunch of Cisco bugs that have been used in that way. Uh, And then the other part is using access to routing infrastructure either in corporate networks or service provider networks to then move traffic around or intercept stuff or, or to leverage that. And that's kind of a, a much more trad Western spook kind of trick. Like Western spooks love being in the you know in the routing infrastructure and helping themselves in that particular way. And seeing the Chinese get better at that is interesting in in my opinion. They they're actually reflashing the Cisco routing devices, right? Like with their
0: own Bad firmware.
1: Yeah, so like backdooring routing and network equipment, uh, you know, once again, the thing that Five Eyes have yeah, been very, very yeah. good at over the years. And so, so the post
0: exploitation bit is the part that you're finding interesting because there's. Yeah, actually,
1: and, and then also yeah. using access to that to reroute traffic. There's some example uh, indicators of compromise uh, where. The Chinese hackers are you know, setting up tunnels to sniff traffic in one place with a Cisco device, tunnel it out to a point where you can then collect it, tunnel it back again or whatever else. Yeah. So that kind of like tromboning traffic around using production network infrastructure is generally reserved for pretty sophisticated hackers, not because it's technically difficult, but, but because there are so many ways to screw it up. And yeah. if you screw it up, you're going to get snapped. And historically for like, I'm thinking like the amount of times I've been in core routing infrastructure and, you know, you want to sniff a particular traffic flow, but, like, I don't know that my Cisco Foo is quite good enough and I don't have a lab to test it first. And that's the thing that if you're an intelligence agency, you've got people whose core expertise is, we've got everything in the lab, we can do this safely, we know how to manipulate service provider routing or whatever else to do what we need to do to carry out on objectives. And that capability is a thing that we're starting to see the Chinese use as well. Yeah. That, that to me, is is a bigger shift than... Just, you know, internet of things, junk hacking that happens to be Cisco branded because Linksys or whatever else.
0: Yeah, well, they've been attacking companies. that This group has been attacking companies that support the defense industry um, since 2010 and lately has been hitting some targets in Taiwan as well. So there's some interesting stuff here. People can go check out that story in this week's show notes. Now, uh, let's talk about North Korea because, I mean... You do got to hand it. Uh, you don't, you don't got to hand it to him. You don't got to hand it to them. <laughs> we, it to them. <laughs> but mean, look, North, North Korea, uh, let me just explain what's happening here, right? So they're, yes. they're going after, you know, they've been doing recruitment-based targeting uh, into Western, Western orgs for a long time. But the way they're doing it now is actually, you know, super clever, makes total sense. They're trying to recruit developers and then they give them a coding challenge and they're like, you got to fix this code and get it to compile and run it uh, or whatever. And, Obviously, it's, you know, laced with malware. And what's great about this is people are doing these coding challenges when they're applying for these made-up jobs uh, that the North Koreans are advertising. They're doing it from their work systems because that's just what people do. And of course, where are detection controls the weakest developer machines? Because they're always compiling and running random stuff. So, like, this is just so clever uh, in so many ways. Um, ESET's done some work on it and uh, we've linked through to a write-up on CyberScoop.
1: Yeah, I mean, although you say all of that, but then one of the ways they were delivering the malicious content was like quiz1.exe, <laughs> quiz2.exe. So, you know, I mean. Oh, so it wasn't
0: like some incomplete project that the developer I mean, may, had. I mean,
1: we have seen them in the past use, you know, like Visual Studio projects or whatever. Yeah, that's what I thought this was. Builds, which, yeah. Which, I mean, I may well have been involved, but it's just like all of that and then also quiz.exe, which, you know. If it works, it's not dumb and clearly it works for them. Yeah. Um, but like the thing about North Koreans targeting this is it's just so brazen and continuous and you know, in that respect they are the classic persistent Yeah. You know, persistent threat.
0: Yeah, quiz quiz one ex, I mean that's right up there with funny
1: It It certainly is And as yes. you
0: said once on this show, what's funnier than cats in a jar? <laughs> I still remember that joke. It, was like, it must have been that's, 10 that's years great. ago. It's a great yeah. joke. That's a great
1: joke.
0: <laughs> uh, the FBI has uh, put out a warning saying that uh, ransomware crews are now double encrypting. So they're using two different strains on operations. And the reason they're doing this is because there are occasionally um, decryptors available, which sync their ops, right? So I think this is a good news story in a way that they're having to double decry- double encrypt.
1: Yeah, and I think it also just reflects the fluidity and success of the of the marketplace. You know, the fact that you can just pick up two engramers; it doesn't cost that much more. Yeah, may as well. Like the fact that they're kind of interchangeable like that uh, yeah. is a sign of the kind of the maturity of that modular marketplace. But of do they have to pay in, just in time crime?
0: Do they have to pay the developers twice? Like that's the bit that I wondered about. Are they are they destroying their profit by doing it this way?
1: I mean, probably, but I think that's a you know a relatively small piece of the puzzle. You know, when I mean, yeah. you think you're doing it in volume you know and you're only going to pay them if you get paid so i don't, I don't know how the how the economics works but clearly it makes sense because they're doing it
0: yeah uh speaking of uh old software you know i should have lumped this with the wsftp one uh some patches came out for XM. there was a bit of a disclosure <laughs> brouhaha because there like was. oh god trend micro's um you know zdi zero day initiative apparently reported some bugs to XM like a year and a half ago or something and they didn't get patched, and then there was communication difficulties and whatever. Like, the whole thing just looks like it was poorly handled. I don't know who by. It could have been XIM. It could have been ZDI. But either way, um, there was a bit of an exposure window here, and Exim has now rushed out a few patches that, as of a couple of days ago, they were saying, we're not even sure if these work because we don't have appropriate details on the on the bugs. But, um, yeah, stressful time to be adminning an Exim box, though
1: yeah i mean xm was i'm not sure if it still is was the default mta for debian based systems as well so like it was surprisingly common and common by people who didn't really think about the fact they were running an internet facing mta uh, so there was quite a lot of it around and i think like this story is a great example of how the modern world um versus the kind of traditional ways that we did disclosure and we handled it you know the fact that bugs matter now yeah, like the old open source way of doing disclosure, especially in big projects like this that are used very widely with all the kind of coordination, was never really fast enough or tight enough to deal with, you know, modern times where you know it's going to get shelled real fast if we don't move. Yeah, and now we've got a year long disclosure window, and it's all just kind of complicated. And, yeah, I feel bad for XM admins.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's two hundred and fifty thousand uh, XM boxes out there apparently. Now, Adam, everybody can calm down. Because the NSA is here to solve the AI problem. Uh, they are spinning up the Artificial Intelligence Security Centre. Now, apparently Paul Macassone, uh, the head of um, uh, NSA and Cyber Command, he's still there. I think he's on his way out, isn't he? But um, he's still there at the moment. But they've got... Um, yeah, they're spinning up a thing within the Cyber Security Collaboration Centre, uh, the CCC, and it's going to be some... It, they're they're going to take a look at AI security and possible applications for AI and whatnot. I mean... I guess this is what you'd expect
1: NSA to do. Um, you certainly would, because I yeah. mean, there's so many interesting aspects of of attacking or using AI, you know, as part of a kind of attack chain that it's worth talking about. And I also think it's probably a great like if you spin up a center that does particularly that, you could take all of the staff that have got the AI bugbear and get them out of everybody else's faces and stop, you know, ruining people's lunchtime conversations with people injecting AI into it. So, you know, good place to put troublemakers. Good um, place to put the obsessives. Yes, yeah, exactly. I'm sure there's none of those uh, in the NSA, um, but yeah, like there are a number of really interesting fields that it makes sense for them to be involved in. Overall, I would like AI to go the way of uh, cryptocurrency, but you know, it, hopefully it'll take uh, you know less time than cryptocurrency has.
0: I regret to inform you that Grey Noise has actually done something quite useful with LLMs, and it.
1: Oh no! It, that's yeah, not, I that's know not good. it really encouraged these people. jeez.
0: Yeah, so Andrew Morris sent me a preview the other day, and I'm like. Don't tell me that was AI generated. He said, yeah, it was. (laughs) I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, God. I know because it's good. It's really annoying because you know they've yeah. got all their sensors all over the internet, and now they can actually just take a bunch of signals and feed it into an LLM, and the LLM says what it is. And it's like
1: well, that sh- oh, that's, that's so anno- it, that annoys that's, me that it works. Yeah, that sounds really <laughs> useful, but I I resent it. I resent it.
0: Yeah, so they probably won't have to do manual tagging anymore. I don't know, man. Grey noise is cool. I'm so glad they're a sponsor, but <laughs> they just keep doing they keep doing cool stuff like that. And uh, yeah, I well stop just, it. We don't approve
1: cool stuff around here anymore.
0: I know, but I'll, I'll send you the link after we're done recording, and you can have a look at it. But it is it is pretty it is pretty sweet. Um, uh, let's just move on to this one from Ars Technica, which is there's some ARM GPU drivers that are apparently under exploit, active exploitation. Um, these devices pop up in all sorts of stuff, including Google Pixel devices and Android handsets, and also Chromebooks. And uh, various bits of hardware that run Linux. Uh, what did you make of this? Is this is this
1: just what some privesc or something? Yeah. So this is local privesc. We want to read bits of memory that you're not supposed to, and if you you know are on the system. So in the case of Android, like you'd have to get a malicious app onto the onto the device first. Um, but Chromebooks are an interesting uh, avenue for attack because a lot of people trust them by virtue of their simplicity. Um, but anyway, this uh, was um, called up by Maddie Stone from uh, Google Project Zero, who's been doing a bunch of interesting research, you know, into these types of weird bugs that affect the Android and, and you know wider ecosystem. Um, and yeah, like this is really good work. It's just a classic example of the Android ecosystem's diversity making it really hard to patch well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but it also makes it really hard to exploit on mouse. It, that's true, yes. As well, especially so. when it's
1: this close to the hardware and down in drivers and stuff. So yeah, definitely you know, double-edged sword for Android time.
0: Uh, just quickly, Brian Krebs has a story up that's quite a lot of fun, which <laughs> is about like, the... Sn- <laughs> so, on this one. <laughs> so, man, you know, mm. you remember I keep talking about, like, and this is something I've said so many times, which is that, like, when dark web markets popped up, everybody thought that this was an unstoppable phenomenon and, you know, completely impervious to law enforcement and stuff. And then we saw just how... Utterly rubbish Ross Ulbricht's OPSEC was. And I <laughs> yes, keep, I keep yeah. saying, like, people have got to stop thinking that m- ransomware crews are magical, right? And have yeah. this incredible OPSEC and stuff. And here is just such a great example of that. Take it away, Adam.
1: Yes. So this is a, a darknet uh, leak site for a ransomware crew called Snatch. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're hidden service on tour where you could connect and see all their things. <sighs> They left the built-in default Apache slash server status thing enabled, which lets you see all of the current requests being handled by the web server and their origin IPs, which, you <laughs> know, if you were to poll that constantly, you would see all the people using a dark web, dark web leak site, including, of course, the admins and the various monitoring systems and all the other stuff that interacts with it to post stuff. And, like, server status is just such a classic... I mean, I remember you
0: know, right. like friends of mine spinning up Apache configs in two thousand one in front of me and saying, "You always need to make sure you disable the status page." Like this is yeah. this is not
1: some obscure thing. Like when I, mean, I remember when pipes hit the you know like top thousand or top hundred thousand whatever it was on the internet websites for server status and got you know session cookies in the in the requests to. Account takeover and so on in like Yahoo and stuff back in the back in the days, but we're talking like early two thousands yeah. <laughs> at best. Yeah, you know, so it is absolutely a thing that you would hope people would turn off, but uh, clearly the sysadmins of the ransomware crew in question, perhaps not up with the play for yeah. early two thousands sysadmining. Yeah,
0: <laughs> just what do you say? What do you say? And look, we're going to close the show with some sad news, Adam Ironnet which was the security company, I guess they were. I don't know that they really delivered much, uh, but they were founded by former NSA director Keith Alexander. Uh, IronNet is no more. It's had a sort of short and controversial history. Uh, Yeah, there's lawsuits. There's all sorts of bad stuff. Uh, I think it's safe to say, and legally safe to say, that it's my personal opinion that Keith Alexander getting involved in this business was a mistake
1: yeah I, th- I think so yeah because I mean they raised what like 400 million dollars and now they're essentially you know zilch no one's going to get any money back. Um, and you know that kind of going straight out of a high profile position like that in the cybers into the industry in this way, like there's plenty of ways you can transition into the private sector out of government. yeah, but this kind of high profile, especially given what the investment landscape was like when when this happened. You know, around the, and the hype around the cybers in general, it was just not a pretty thing to watch. And hopefully, uh, all the people who actually work there doing real work um, will have somewhere else to go.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just staggering that someone like Keith Alexander winds up sort of involved in something like this. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's mind blowing.
1: It, it does feel, you know, a little bit gross, a little bit, little bit icky. Little Let's bit icky.
0: be honest. Let's see what Paul Nakasone does next. Uh, <laughs> is it? Don't do this. Um, I would think is is the is the move. Well, Adam, uh, mate, that is it for the week's news. Thank you so much uh, for for joining me from uh, from California over there. Actually, having a vacay, having a holiday, um, but but still finding time to do the weekly show. You having a good time?
1: Yeah, having a great time. Actually, I was over in the People's Republic of Berkeley this morning, where uh, I guess in a way my security career started through the Kuzey Cliff Stoll's book about uh, Russian hackers. So yeah, kind of. Kind of funny, you know, it's been a fun, been a fun trip and seeing yeah. some of the sites. Yeah, awesome,
0: awesome. All right, well, uh, we're going to get you back on next week and Lena Lau is going to join us again. That's hey, going to be fun. So, um, yeah, we'll talk to you then and enjoy uh, your time in California, mate.
1: Yeah, thanks very much. and I'll talk to you next week, Pat. That was Adam bylow there with a
0: check of the week's security news. Big thanks to him for that. It is time for this week's Sponsor Interview now with George Glass of Kroll Cyber. Kroll is a global risk advisory firm that has a cybersecurity arm and uh, they're very well known for their incident response work and their managed detection and response services. So George joined me this week to talk about MoveIt and specifically about the history of the MoveIt exploit uh, that's behind what's probably the largest single data theft campaign in history. And as it turns out, when Kroll went back through its historical IR caseload, it actually found evidence that the Klopp gang were developing the move it exploit on live targets for a period of about two years. Here's George Glass.
2: I'd love to be able to tell you that we, we had some sort of mega algorithm to go and tell us that, hey, this is something that we've seen before. But it was, you know, um, to be perfectly honest, it's just a lot of really good IR people noticing something that they'd seen before. So as we started to see all of these logs come in from all of the various cases, some of the, uh, the paths and uh, the, the tradecraft was ringing bells for people. Uh, and so we went back and back on, on previous MUBIT cases, done a, a bunch of them previously. And sure enough, we could see what looked like the beginnings of an exploit two years before this actually happened which obviously, at, at the time, we thought, wow, that's pretty amazing. There's pretty strong evidence here. Uh, let's have a, a look at this. And uh, yeah, sure enough, it seems like that the CLOP group were developing this for quite some time, and they've clearly got the, the money to, to sit around and develop zero-day exploits for these very popular uh, file transfer products. And that was that was really interesting to work on. There's obviously a lot of nuances to the, the case in general, but... Um, as something to I I won't say stumble upon, but you know, it's just because we had that case data that we were able to find um, yeah, yeah, what no, they were doing for so long.
0: That's interesting. So you're responding to the move it ones, right? And you saw yeah. you know you spoke about certain behaviors and whatever. So those were for logs on the actual move it from the actual move it appliances?
2: Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, for and you noticed that and,
0: and you you mentioned paths. Like what was the relevance of paths in this?
2: Uh, so a, a lot of the the paths that we uh, were looking at were sort of where they were putting their post requests, especially where the the, the API uh, Dll is requests uh, request to get um, slash API v1 tokens all of those things were um, you know f- you know stuff that could be part of a sort of more general exploit attempt but then we started seeing you know attempts for, for human 2aspx and things like that um, and that's what tied it so closely to to what we were um, investigating. So, so-
0: so then you match then someone it rang the bell and what was the event that you know that it rang a bell on was that from some other case where move it was involved
2: i think that was um some some casework where there was enough weird traffic to the device that warranted an, an ir investigation um but not necessarily exploitation so um Okay, yeah, I'm, in, in I'm much
0: particular. clearer now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I kind yeah. of understand, which is like, okay, so you, you're you doing the, the move at teardowns and after a certain point, you're doing a lot of these things. After a while, you look at these requests that are coming in. They start to look familiar. You understand them and you go, hang on, we've seen this before. And then you went back and had a look at it and realized that they were sort of, what, fumbling about trying to actually refine... This they, they, and develop their techniques until they could actually pop shell. That's so funny because it tells us that they were actually building this thing on boxes that were in the wild instead of trying to get yeah. a copy of this thing and actually working on it themselves. Is, is that what you think happened here?
2: Yeah, it seems like they've periodically, again, this is from our data, so they, they could have been doing yeah. this on mass we just don't see it. Um, but it seems like periodically they were trying uh, different exploits against in the wild technologies. One of the, the key things was looking for that putting the, the org ID out, which is something that they can use to uh, programmatically access the API, that was happening every every few months for, for a couple of years. And then it looks like they perfected it. And then one of the things Klopp seems to be very good at is targeting public holidays, obviously. So clearly, they felt that they had a complete exploit and then waited until the best time to deploy it. So, yeah, re- really interesting um, set of circumstances, which which led to a really cool investigation
0: yeah now, I mean, I'd imagine you would be quite aware of the scale of this thing, right? Having to responded to quite a few of them. I mean, it it does somewhat boggle the mind that a piece of technology that you know, let's face it, is quite archaic is just in mm-hmm. such wide use, right? and 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 used in such a way that it's directly accessible from the internet and vulnerable to exploits like these. I mean, you know this is, in a way, I mean, this just tells me that there's a valuable lesson here, which is maybe don't use archaic. Uh, 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 technology like this to move around sensitive information, like it just it just seems like that's the the lesson here, which is you know we were doing something we shouldn't have been doing and we've been smacked on the nose with a rolled up newspaper as a result.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you must use those things, consider deleting older data because right? this technology was used for, as, as has been discussed, payroll, um, legal documentation, everything. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's designed to be easily accessible so you can easily share files in a secure way. And we found not only were we dealing with the splash damage uh, from third parties, organizations that were running Move and were impacted, and then they had to contact everyone that was impacted by that Um, third parties of third parties, even um, because everything that they do for that other third party was done via that particular law firm or financial services organization or or so on and so forth um well I mean I mean you just
0: touched you just touched on something really important there which is that this data doesn't need to live on those boxes forever and in fact I've seen people suggest that look you can actually configure these things to auto nuke data after like 30 days or whatever to minimize your exposure in your experience though I'm guessing you're going to tell me that people weren't doing that
2: uh no, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like cases. signal
0: signal disappearing messages, right? Like the you know you can do this with your file transfer appliances.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and, and on the back end of this thing, it's basically a fancy SQL database. Uh, at the end of the day, it's probably a good idea just to get rid of it, just for performance sake. Um, let alone data retention and and yeah. um, you know practicing good data hygiene. Um, so yeah, certainly if these things have to be used. Maybe have it as a, a read once or or live for a week. You know, I, I don't think these documents need to be there forever, really.
0: Now, what do you think this behavior that you'd observed, you know, two years ago, right? What do you think that tells us about the way groups like Clop are actually discovering, developing, putting together these exploits and what sort of things they're targeting? Because it seems like, you know, quite obviously that they were testing this thing in the wild, but I'm going to guess that they're doing similar sort of things to other technologies did you did you manage to connect some of that historical activity to other exploitation attempts against other enterprise
2: kit um no we haven't haven't been able to to do um something quite like that but what what i think it does say is clearly these guys have made so much money that they can employ people to develop zero-day exploits full-time um which in and of itself is something Pretty remarkable, really. Do you think? Do you think um, though
0: that it was full time, or do you think it was just someone noodling around, like between, you know, I don't know, laundering their Bitcoin and whatever, and just, uh, you know, <laughs> what? What makes you think it was? What makes you think it was a full time effort?
2: Uh, well, I guess maybe maybe it's it's hard to say if it was full time, but they've certainly spent a long time doing this. It seems to me that they stack up these vulnerabilities. I wouldn't be surprised if there was one already lined up for the Thanksgiving. Christmas period for pop I mean that's certainly something that they've they've done in the past um so I I really wouldn't be surprised if we see another one of these um for a similar file sharing product something along those lines um and I I think one one of the main things that this is moving towards is this sort of mass exploitation mass mass exposure of data is something that that particular group is getting really quite good at to so this Mostly automated. um we we actually, well, saw but I mean, two- that's-
0: that's the thing, isn't it? They've built all of that infrastructure so that they can handle having, I mean, there's startups out there that could learn from these guys <laughs> in terms of like how to process a lot of activity all at once, right? Like, you know, and they've, got, they've automated that whole back end, the payment processing, everything, you know? So there's the harvest phase where they go out and they get all the data and then there's the turning it into money phase. But I do wonder how applicable this business model is to different types of vulnerabilities. I mean, the wonderful thing about exploiting file transfer appliances is you can automate it because you're exploiting a vulnerability on the box where the data is, and the data yep. is stored in a in a uniform format, and you can programmatically hack all of them at once. You know, even in an MDM solution or a firewall or anything else, you know, it's not like that. You're going to have to get on on the on the border device, then pivot, then do this, then do that. I mean, the beautiful thing about the the file transfer appliances is it's just one step.
2: Yeah, absolutely. If if it was a a, a vulnerability in a firewall. Or, or a VPN, and you had to do some initial access, lateral movement, and all that. Yeah, I mean, what, sort of what stuff. are they
0: going to do? Ransom your firewall config? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, yeah. that people are not going to pay.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're picking specific products for the next couple of months worth of exploitation. I mean, hell, they're, they're still putting uh, some victims up now. I think there's like well over a thousand plus victims in total.
0: Are they still uh, listing clop victims now? like uh, I uh, think so. uh move it victims now yeah right yeah i think there's yeah. still a
2: couple going up
0: what's funny too is that people i think have forgotten that this was the second round for them and excelion fta was mm. the first right like it is it is sort of remarkable that move it turned into this global watershed moment whereas excelion barely got a mention i mean you know you would see people reporting on the data loss incidents in isolation, but it wasn't nearly as big a story. Why do you think that is? Is it just because Move it had a bigger market share and more customers?
2: Yes, I think so. I think they probably learned a lot of lessons from Acelium. Acelium also was happening during COVID, right? So there was probably a lot of other things <laughs> we were worried wor- about. Different- worry about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but this one definitely has, uh, yeah, as I say, probably over a thousand victims now. Uh, and the splash mm. damage, absolutely massive. Um, yes. You know, just because you happen to have a supplier that was using Revit, oh, by the way, now all of your um, employees' uh, data is leaked, um, and you've got to you know, deal with the credit monitoring for that and all of that basically for the rest of time. That's a, a pretty hard pill to swallow.
0: Not to not to mention the regulatory fallout and then journalists mining leaked data for stories and all sorts of stuff. I mean, it'll play out for a while.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's... Mm. it's um, I hate to say it but it's always impressive the scale of the thing is impressive
0: yeah i mean as far as capers go right um definitely yeah it's you know great train robbery ask right uh uh, for sure but i mean like how many file transfer appliances remain in the market because you know a lot of this stuff is moving to the the cloud now um you know you wouldn't you you might be able to uh own some accounts that hold company data and whatever but you're only going to be able to steal so much before someone uh, at the, you know, if someone's providing this as SAS, someone's gonna hopefully, uh, Touchwood, hopefully gonna notice and pull the plug on the attackers, right, so you should be able to uh, limit the damage. But are there still a lot of other file transfer appliances and other, other companies, you know, other vendor solutions out there that you think might be next?
2: Um, oh, I, I really couldn't see. Uh i think is is probably next oh, not
0: who i'm just i'm just asking if there's a lot more if it's a target rich sector or if if excelion and move it are basically the only two vendors that that count
2: i think there's there's definitely um there's definitely other other targets that do things like payroll um things like financial and legal documentation and they have a very particular group of customers um yeah. which obviously is a very target rich environment uh, but are these things
0: of, are these things like accessible on the edge with an open port you know is that is that the way they tend to be deployed
2: yes yeah, they're, they're, yeah okay. they're designed to be easily uh easily accessed and and you know just send a link access access our, our portal upload your files and I'll download them on my end so yeah they're they're designed that yeah. way
0: yeah right that's interesting because I haven't heard many people sort of talking about that that you know, ultra specific stuff like payroll and legal, but it makes sense, right? So you'd expect we could expect, you think we should be expecting that they're doing some R&D on solutions like that, you know, and they're similar to the Move It one where you can just get on that box, exfil the data from that box, do it programmatically and then, you know, harvest the data and then get to work selling it.
2: Yes. Yeah, I I really wouldn't be surprised if there was something in the pipe for the next uh, sort of holiday season. And yeah, that's, it's it's hard to say what it's going to be but um i wouldn't be surprised
0: all right well you're a bucket of chuckles aren't you george uh thanks george glass for joining us to walk us through uh, some lessons learned through uh responding to the movement uh, incidents uh pleasure to chat to you as always thank you sir That was George Glass there with this week's sponsor interview. Big thanks to him and big thanks to Kroll Cyber for its support of the Risky Business podcast. And that is it for this week's show. I'll be back tomorrow uh, with another edition of Seriously Risky Business in the Risky Business News feed. Uh, But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.